Howdy. Welcome to Undersampled Radio, the show where we talk science, tech, oil, business, politics, and more. Hi, I'm Matt. And I'm Graham. Together, we're the hosts of this circus. To follow the conversation, make suggestions, or rant and rave, please visit the forum Software Underground at swung.rocks. And we're live, by the way. So <laughs> once again, the first thing that's being recorded is Matt saying something. I checked. I looked in the corner before I before I said that word. <laughs> okay, so hopefully the lag cut that out from your recording. But uh, we are live, and um, welcome to an exciting uh, episode 18 of Undersampled Radio. We've got Matt cursing already. We've got an awesome guest. Uh, we've... <laughs> I hope you watch this one on video because <laughs> because uh, Matt's out of control and he's taking a shower today. He's wearing what? What is that, Matt? Is that linen? Is that a linen shirt? Yeah, it's nice. I think it's seersucker. Seersucker. <laughs> the irony and the the thing is, you're supposed to be the you're supposed to be the you know the potty mouth one around here. You were the one that was worried about. We used to be um, explicit. explicit, and because of you. And you know, self-confessed sort of uh, going off the rail, and and I think I'm the only person who's actually sworn since we. <laughs> Did you believe that, by the way, last week? I think I think I, I think I used the S word. Oh sh- crud! I didn't believe that. So okay. no, well, no. wait now. So we can't talk about it now. The iTunes bots that are listening in are gonna kick us off the air again. Yeah, we're pretty sure we're, we're under surveillance by an army of uh, podcast bots. Um, anyway. We tell, so, hold on. Let me, <laughs> what are we doing? News. News is next. We've already uh, sort of breached the news on our um, forum, swung.rocks, but we're, we're on iTunes. Uh, we've got a new home for Undersampled Radio. We mentioned this last time, I think. The URL is undersampledrad. Dot io, get it, get it. It's like under sample to radio, huh? Pretty cool, pretty cool. It was, it was Matt's idea, um, and uh, we're on all the other stuff too. So Google Music and all this stuff. Um, Matt's got a tip in here about Android. It seems a lot of people use the Podcast Addict app. In fact, we have a bunch of people on the Software Underground that do that, and they 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 like it a lot. And it's like one of the platforms that stayed up when most of our other stuff went down so right except i would add actually i I realized that it was me that had that remark in the first place but i would also add further to my addition that i think podcast subscriptions are a fairly new thing in google music um so (laughs) i've actually started using that i think i've kind of got both on the go at the moment but um they offer slightly different you know uh, automatic downloads and all that kind of stuff, but I'm, I'm liking Google Music at the moment, so that's why podcasts. Cool. Um, so, what's going on in news there, buddy? Uh, well, I, I I didn't have a lot, but I just I did really like this um, Kickstarter that uh, who tweeted it. I think I saw it from. Angel Rodriguez. Uh, I can't remember. Actually, it was someone I follow on Twitter. Anyway, oh. tweeted about it and. Um, it's basically a little board and, a, and a, potentially a geophone, but the, the main thing they're selling is the little board 
to interface between a geophone and the Raspberry Pi, um, and or probably other sort of microcontroller, microcomputer-like things. Um, but anyway, the package that I went for on Kickstarter, the link is in the show notes, um, includes a geophone uh, and this little board. Um, and I think I didn't go for the one that includes a pie, but you can even get them to throw the pie in as well, uh, because I have a few pies floating around already. Anyway, so it's a really awesome way to play around with seismology, uh, potentially with some kids in the classroom, um, some students, that kind of thing, uh, you know, because there'll be easy ways to get at, like, raw signals and play with your own uh, sort of processing signal processing stuff. So looking forward to that. It's not shipping yet. I think they're shipping in November 2016 is the goal. But of course, remember on Kickstarter, it's not a store and you're not buying a something. You're supporting a project that may or may not happen. Um, so anyway, that looked cool. And then the only other thing uh, I threw in there, um, because there is a bit of a machine learning link with Chris that we'll chat about later, um, is I've been playing around with this. I guess there's a sort of meta machine learning uh, thing. Uh, evolutionary machine learning is part of that. The idea is to use machine learning to design machine learning solutions, pipelines. Uh, so I'm playing with this Python library called Teapot, which uses genetic programming to find pipelines that gradually increase the score you're getting from a machine learning task. So uh, I'm machines using it. And building machines. Yeah, exactly, exactly. Skynet again, man. It's yeah, it's pretty cool. Like it's kind of cool because at the end you get a piece of code that, that you get the code that it used that got the highest score that it got, kind of thing. Um, but it's super slow is the only problem. So um, I, I, there's a lot of chatter on the GitHub about the project uh, about kind of getting it parallel. Um, there's multiple ways I think to parallelize it. So that's. It's almost a showstopper for me right now because I'm uh, almost unable. It takes so long to run. Um, anyway, it's kind of fun. That's what I've been up to. What, what about you, Graham? I've got one thing going on, which is um, I've I'm coming to the end of the first draft of my ABO inverter written in Julia, and it's pretty awesome. And it's written for a particular client, so I'm going to rewrite it or, you know, just obfuscate it basically um, to some sort of general thing. And I'm going to put it on my GitHub. Um, it's not the best AVO inverter ever designed, but it works on commercial data sets. It splits it up, runs it in parallel. Big data is lovely and it's free. So check it out. I don't know. It'll be up there and whenever I get around to it, a couple weeks. So it's, it's running on like partial angle stacks or gathers or... It's running it on, on full shot gathers. All oh, right, nice. Yeah. yeah, sounds pretty awesome. Why don't you introduce our guest? Yeah, I, well, I'm super excited about uh, having Chris Jackson with us today, um, a professor at Imperial College, and um, but I was thinking this morning, like, I, well, I I haven't seen Chris since 2005, APG in Calgary. <laughs> Pretty sure it was 2005. I think it. I think it was Matt. I think I missed most of that because I was lying in bed for the greater part of that conference. <laughs> well, I remember leaving you in a bar in uh, <laughs> uptown Calgary. But um, I was thinking, oh my, well, just that's that 12 years ago, and how worrying and frightening and everything that that is. 
But um, yeah, Chris and I are kind of uh, uh, what would you call it in the states? I guess advisor or uh, doctoral supervisor brothers. We share a, a parent um, <laughs> at the University of Manchester. We both uh, did our PhDs with Rob Gawthorpe, who's uh, now in Bergen. And um, I think you did. You you were like two. 1998? Did you start? Yeah, I started, I started 2008. Yeah. 98. 98. Oh, my God. Yeah, yeah. sorry. <laughs> yeah, let's reflect a second. <laughs> <laughs> Decrepit wheel, though. <laughs> uh, and I think you also did your undergrad there, right? So I probably yeah. came across you a little bit when I was finishing my PhD and you were an undergrad. Uh, yeah, I think you. Geology. I think you might have demonstrated to us and taught me everything I know, Matt. Yeah, awesome. <laughs> uh, so, uh, so welcome to the, the Thank you. circus that is Understandable Radio. Where are you today, Chris? I am currently in Austin, Texas. What are you doing so, now? Um, yeah, I have a visiting scientist position at UT. So every year. Um, I come over in the summers for about five to seven weeks at a time and do research with uh, some people here in the Applied Geodynamics Laboratory, so salt tectonics mainly. And then I also come back a couple of other times a year just to um, interact with the researchers here. So I'm currently sitting in uh, the, the, the Pickles Research Campus, it's called. Pickles? And Pickles, yeah, P JJ Pickles Research oh. Campus. So it's uptown. It's not on the kind of oh. plush surrounds of the 40 acres downtown. And I've actually managed to sneak into a, it's one of the bureau's rooms. This is one of the Texas Advanced Computer Center rooms. You can see it's all nice and shiny and everything. Um, so if anybody comes and like, starts shouting at me from my right-hand side, it's because I maybe shouldn't be in here. But it, it's like way nicer than my windowless office across the road. So uh, that's where I am. Well, we've never, been, we've never been thrown out of an episode by the cops yet, so I hope that happens. Watch this space. The only good thing is it's before August the 1st here, right, when Opic Carry comes in, so maybe I've got a better chance of getting away with it. <laughs> All right, so uh, what's your favorite part about Austin? Uh, I have to say the work, I guess. No, 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 no. <laughs> What's your second favorite part of us? watching? <laughs> <laughs> no, I mean the work is brilliant. I mean it's. I mean in terms of not just being in Austin, but in terms of getting away from where you're normally physically based and sitting in a new environment. I know me and Matt have sort of talked about this in the context a little bit of conferences, but in terms of being physically in a different area and talking to different people in a different way, um, that's probably the best thing about being in Austin. There's just brilliant scientists here. It's a really nice atmosphere. It's very focused in terms of what they do. So, in terms, you know, I do, I do really like the work. In terms of the greater Austin experience, it's very easy to kind of enjoy the outdoors in terms of not necessarily running and cycling because it's like a million degrees here at the moment in the summers. But uh, in terms of sitting outside late and you know barbecuing and having drinks on the terrace and sort of meeting with friends, it's a bit more, there's a bit more mobility in Austin than in London, which it's a bit more strain in London because people are living further apart to try and get together. Um, mm. So yeah, socially it's really good. Um, the yeah, music's how, good. How, how long have you been doing that, uh, that visiting lecture? Like, you must know quite a few people there now. Right? Yeah, yeah, I do. So that's a really good thing. So I, I came over here in October 2012 and oh. stayed till October 2013. So I, I lived here for a year and then after I left after that sabbatical, that full sabbatical year, after I left, I then 
have been coming back since then. So each summer uh, in February, typically, I come out for a week, like a two weeks, uh, just on my own. So I come out here and we do some some research together. And then I also come out for their annual general meeting, which is in November. So then I come out for a week, do a bit of research, and we get ready to give the talks to all the uh, corporate sponsors. So uh, yeah, it's been going on for yeah, it makes me feel really old, like almost four years. It's kind of yeah, it's been really good, but kind of going quickly. Well, if you're going to spend spend extra time somewhere, Austin's a pretty awesome place to spend it. What, um, yeah. what kind of stuff are you doing there? Is is there a is there a physical um, look like a laboratory? Is there physical experiments going on? Is it computational stuff? Or? No, it's a bit of everything actually. So um, the the salt tectonics groups, the applied geodynamics laboratory, um, there is a physical laboratory where a lot of physical model, models are run. So scale mm -hmm. physical models. So that's Tim Dooley who runs that lab principally based around salt tectonics, uh, structures, kinematics, mechanics. Um, and then across the road in the building where I sit, that's where the main kind of a bit of researchers sit outside of the physical modeling lab. And we're principally working with seismic reflection data, so interpretation of, of salt basins and also geomechanical modeling. Based on seismic based only or using subsurface as well? Yeah, basically all using seismic, mainly using uh, seismic reflection data principally. A bit of gravity and magnetic data when there's been some projects looking at the relationship between salt bases and crust type um, and timing of salt deposition and breakup of continents. So those people are using more gravity and magnetic data. But <coughs> the main skill set kind of is mainly with seismic reflection data and borehole data. So we use boreholes as well to calibrate the seismic. So I'm curious about these physical models. Do they um, are they dynamic? models, and if they're dynamic, what plays the role of the salt? Yeah, it's a good question. So um, they are dynamic models. So they're ran over anything from a few days to I think some of Tim's models have run for maybe a month, maybe even a longer. Awesome. Because you're basically dealing with a scaled model, and you're, you're, you know, a lot of the deformation processes and patterns are strain rate dependent. So you can apply the force to the models, be it just gravity, so just tilting the model, or you can actually shorten the model or extend the model using, you know, motors. Um, so they're about the size of a standard uh, work desk, maybe a bit smaller. I mean, the, the box itself is mod is kind of fairly modest, but there's a big rig about set up around it because there's lots of monitoring equipment. Huh. So there's a, a DIC, which is like a submillimeter LIDAR scanner of the model. So as the model's going, you can look at deformations on the millimeter scale on the top surface. Cool. There's also cameras underneath the model, which are monitoring through the basal part of the model. So you can see the deformation in the heart of the, the model. Um, at the end of the model run, the model is cut up and photographed. And then we can bring that into things like Petrel, dare I say it, or any any seismic interpretation software platform of your choosing, and uh, you can interpret the kind of structural styles and infer the kinematics from the finite geometry. So, um, in terms of the salt, it's a, it's a kind of silicon that's used. So it's amazing stuff. You could, you know, if you have a ball of it and you put it on your desk and you go away for a coffee for an hour or so, or if you have an hour-long coffee break, if you put it on your desk, it kind of will come back and it'll be a droplet. It'll have basically deformed out to a pool. So it's, um, and then we use um, Sand as the overburden, as the brittle rocks. So silicon for the salt and, and sand for the brittle rocks. Oh, fascinating, man! That would be a fun thing to play with. Oh, it's—I mean, it's absolutely amazing. I mean, in terms of the engineering that goes into it, that Tim does, it's—it's it's very, very fascinating. But it's just 
watching them actually run is really inspiring as a seismic interpreter, as a structural geologist, because you suddenly realize how complex the world is and you are just receiving the end product on your workstation or in the field. You know, and you trying to infer what's happened is very is very difficult from simple that simple end product. And is is salt the main For me, um, it um no, I mean I in terms of my research, Matt. Hmm. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, I do everything. A bit of <laughs> I kind of. Uh, Salt is occupying a large amount of my time at the moment. Um, mm. It's, it's. I, I guess in general in geology, I just like doing projects where you have to think a lot about different things, which sounds a bit vague. But I'm interested in how structural development influences stratigraphy and sedimentology. I'm interested in how um, the kinematics can tell us about mechanics and systems in salt. Wherever you, wherever you have all kind of talking to the new people, techniques I like, I like. Even if we're looking at mass transport complexes, I'm as interested in the structural development as I am in stratigraphy. So, um, I have a very, I have a fairly skittish sort of approach to research, as I think you you might know. You know, I kind of I've worked on lots of different things, and I just enjoy it really. So, salt is occupying a large amount of that time at the moment because of working out here with these guys, and because it's just mind-blowingly interesting. Um, but I'm happy to kind of focus and do lots of different things. Right. So, um, and you're doing the GSA lecture tour. Is that in, is that next year? It is. It is. It's supposed to start in. Um, it's supposed to start in September this year, but um, it's likely I'm going to go out in February and in uh, April next year for two two week blocks in North America. So. Um, yeah, like flying around. Yeah. I don't. Apparently, I don't get like a black tour bus. It's kind of <laughs> disappointing, right? <laughs> um, just a so private jet. Bouncing. <laughs> I'm just going to be bouncing around between um, different airports and going to different institutions. So I've currently got this like hellish spreadsheet with all these dates on and these different institutions who have told me what dates they can do, and I have to try and. <laughs> Make that all stick together and the traveling salesman problem. Sorry, say again. This traveling salesman problem. Yes. <laughs> so I'm gonna. It's gonna. It's quite. It's yeah. It's quite stressful putting it together. Yeah, you you have to do the scheduling. I kind of. I, I thought maybe that there were people for that, but no. <laughs> well, I mean, to go back a little bit, I did. I did the APG lecture tour in 2013. Yeah, and uh, that was all done for me. So you get you get the lectureship, you tell APG or told APG what dates you could go. They went away. They contacted all these institutions. They contacted geological surveys. Suddenly, I had a, a document back, and it just said, "These, this is where you're going. Here's your flight times. This is it." Okay. I had no choice. This is kind of inspiring because it get because here I'm like emailing places I want to go and interact with, and places I think would you know would be, be good for me to go and talk to. Right. Um, so I've got a lot more control over that process, but it does mean <laughs> I'm literally knocking on people's doors asking if I can turn up. <laughs> That's well, okay. So yeah, it's it's awesome, but it's a lot of work. But so are you going to change Canada? No, it, it's it stipulates North America. 
which doesn't include Canada yet, as far as I'm aware. <laughs> it totally does include Canada. <laughs> but does it literally? Is it, is it only the United States? No, well, it's, uh, they have two. They have two branches of the lectureship. Uh, they have um, one which I think is an international one, and one which is a, a domestic one. So the international one is going off to, or in the past has gone off to Southeast Asia. I think they've been to the Middle East and, and lots of different places. And then the domestic one is principally from North America. But maybe I could sneak across the border and come up. Should totally try. <laughs> I've never been to uh, what your part of the world though, Matt. So it'd be nice to come. Oh, yeah. so, just make sure it's interesting. Related to your touring activities, I hear that you also have a mini conference coming up. What's that about? Yeah, so um, I go to all the normal conferences along with everybody else because that's where my paymasters reside and some of my friends and, you know, it's, there's lots of benefits to doing it. But at uh, a conference earlier this year, there was a big conference in London and in the pub, which is where all the high-level scientific discussions occur in, in, in England. Um, there were some of us who were kind of a bit agitated that the timetable was so full and the social aspects, networking aspect was so poorly designed, we had very little chance to talk freely about, you know, in a, quite an expansive way. You know, a Q&A in three minutes at the end of the talk is not the place to do that, and neither is the coffee area, certainly at the Geological Society of London, because it's not really, you know, it's an old building, it's not really set up, it's not conducive to, to that, and you know, you have to miss sessions, and it becomes a bit problematic. So we really wanted to get together to talk about how, um, in this particular case, how we could um, work together in terms of understanding how rifting occurs, how, how continents break up, because there's a bunch of people who are big scale numerical modelers. There's the kind of macro scale people like me who work in the field and on seismic data looking at things using typically subsurface data and there's a bunch of other people interested in micromechanics and structural geology. And we want to just sit we wanted to just sit together and talk about where we thought we were failing or where the, 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 the techniques we typically used were limited and how we could get those people across the table to help us, right? You know, we had to it would need to be a forum where we could be honest and say we can do this, but we can't do all this other stuff. And that, and in conferences, you don't normally do that, do you? You have a slide at the end where you say future work, or yeah. this would benefit yeah. from this approach, or, and then somebody might put their hand up, or you know. And it's never, you never can really build on that, that sort of admission of stupidity, which I think the scientist is sometimes where we, we're scared, to, what we're scared to do, but actually that's where we can benefit. Anyway, so. As it is, I kind of emailed three or four people and just said, hey, do you want to go and hang out somewhere nice and have a whiteboard and some coffee and cake and just talk about what we thought we could do together and, you know, five to ten years, what we thought were the big things we needed to try and tackle. Um, and so that's where we've got to, really. So I kind of started interacting with Matt because I'd obviously been reading the uh, Agile blog and sort of seeing some Twitter traffic about um, conferences and what they could and couldn't do in their, their standard format. Um, so yeah, so Matt set up a Google Doc, so I kind of riffed a bit with him on that. I sort of asked a few people on Twitter what they thought about it, and um, a lot of interesting views. You know, there's some like more prosaic things like, oh, it's just expensive to go to conferences and blah blah blah. But I, I guess I'm more interested in what we ultimately get out of them. Hmm. Um, so that's where we are in the planning stage. It looks likely to take part place in London. 
Um, it looks likely that we're going to hire somewhere really nice, like one of these big loft conversions in East London, you know, with the big lights filled rooms and like mat stresses, good coffee, good cake, good food. Um, we're thinking of maybe priming the, the meeting by everybody sending one paper of somebody else's and one paper of their own, which kind of gets people on board with some of the language maybe, which the other people are going to be using during the, during the day. And also to highlight where we thought some of the, you know, the, sh the kind of limitations were in our discipline. And I'm open to sort of suggestions now and in the future as to whether that's a good approach. Yeah, it seems like a really interesting, like a really concept, interesting concept, concept and a great form for expansion, expansion on ideas. On ideas. Um, you know, it's sort um, of yeah, one of these things where you get a lot of knowledge, lot of knowledge think done, done, if you get to, you get to interact with those scientists. Um, the notes that Matt wrote are linked in our show notes. If you guys want to check them out, I highly recommend it. Um, so how many people are you expecting? What's your goal for attendance? Well, this, yeah, so I talked a bit to Matt about this. I mean, it's a bit different to the hackathon, for example, or something like that, where at the moment there's like four of us, because it was four of us who happened to be at the bar at the same time. <laughs> a natural selection. Um, we probably, you know, notionally, I think, you know, we'd want to keep it to maybe, you know, maybe 10 people just so we could sort of just test it out, see what the dynamics like, make sure we have enough, you know, bandwidth in terms of expertise and interest, but not so much that it basically became another conference where people stood up then at the front and dictated the whole thing. Um, it, so it's a bit different in, to the hackathons or something like that where, you maybe I don't know. You're a bit more cautious about whether, like, you know, you might be flooded or not many people are going to turn up because you're appended to another kind of. At the moment, you know, it's kind of associated with another another kind of conference or meeting. Um, in terms of goals, one idea was a kind of, you know, let's try and talk together to do a big review paper with a look forward section in there, which was kind of again papers are not often written like that. You often get a review paper, but they're sometimes they're quite. Final, and we wanted to kind of have as much about having, you know, it's almost a white paper rising from that workshop. This is where we think future sort of research efforts could be, could be, could be applied. Um, we also talked about grant proposals, so uh, like a big sort of integrated, multidisciplinary proposal across the scales and across the techniques. Um, so intellectually, that'd be very stimulating to do. Um, so they were the two things we sort of informally discussed, really. And even if it just means that one or two of us in the room get a project going, and the other two people get a project going, and then you know we reconvene in two or three years' time, and you know we're in it for the long haul. We don't need to, you know, have a patentable product by the end of the workshop. That's not the aim. It's kind of like Matt's hackathons, and you know the agile around the hackathons is it's principally just to have people hanging out and trying to make things happen now and in the future, really. Yeah, right. But I mean, I do, I do really like that idea that the conference doesn't just have to be something that happens after everyone's done some research and then we're trying to them talk about it, but they're not really open to discussions. Like, well, there's a whole bunch of things I didn't tell you, you know, don't talk to me about the future research, I know what I'm doing. That kind of show and tell and actually treating, I guess maybe conference is the wrong word at that point. But there's actually the product, you know, there's actually something that comes out of it, and this is actually a work session with stuff that, that happens next because we got together. I think that's really awesome. So I love 
what you're doing. It sounds crazy. Yeah, I think, I mean, one I mean, one thing, Matt, you've just reminded me, I mean, one thing which was always a kind of big, big no-no and still is in, in published literature, and I remember Rob told me this, you know, you never ever in a paper said, rarely would you say future research will focus on, or would you say, as we develop improved code, or, you know, future fieldwork will focus, you know, it was just never a thing which you would do, and I, You've got me thinking, like, <laughs> I guess people are scared to say that because somebody might look at this paper and go, well, you know, well, if this paper's not answering the question, then, you know, what value is it, you know? I mean, you know, let's not pretend things aren't incremental. They, they, they ultimately are, aren't they? I mean, because you, you're continuously building. And, okay, there might be some big sort of, you know, underlining this is everything we could find out with the kind of, you know, with the with the stuff, the, the skills we had or the techniques we had at that time, but let's keep going. And, you know, I guess it's trying to unpack that, unpack that and try and make people more honest about what they can and can't do. Right. <coughs> so, can we, I'd quite like to chat about... Um, Earth analytics, I guess. And, like, I wondered how, how you knew Eric Larson, and was this your first foray into uh, sort of entrepreneurship if you like, or startup? And where, where's that at? Because I haven't heard a lot coming from you about it, other than this mention of, hey, I'm involved in this thing. Uh, where's, where's that going? Yeah, so. I'm not an entrepreneur, Matt, by any way. All, all, the, all the entrepreneurial brains reside in, in Norway with the. There's Demetrius and Eric, really. I mean, um, Eric's like my best, one of my best geo buddies, um, and we've been working together for many years. He used to work for Statoil, North Kidro, Rocksource. He used to work for a bunch of companies, but me and him just love hanging out, looking at rocks in the core and seismic. We've been doing that for a long time together, and obviously with the industry going through all this turbulence, um, a lot of people and very good people find themselves out of work, and those people are trying to apply their skills and use the data that's still out there to try and position themselves that when the industry gets better, you know, they, they actually have a product or, a, a, you know, something to sell or and just to keep themselves relevant. Um, so Earth Analytics, analytics is kind of, has been set up around machine learning and trying to use these large repositories of publicly available, principally well data that's available in the Northern North Sea. So one thing machine learning vibes off is a lot of data, you know, so if you can get data inputs, you probably can use the machine learning to try and, for example, understand the relationship between porosity, reservoir quality, and burial depth, or um, reservoir thickness and structural position within the basin, or substance rate and, you know, therefore then, you know, reservoir quality. So you can use this to try and look for trends between basins parameters, be it structural or stratigraphic, these parameters and trying to look for links and therefore be predictive and therefore reduce exploration risk. Hmm. Um, so the idea is that we're trying to use machine learning to mine these large volumes of data in the northern North Sea to try and basically improve exploration. I mean for my part I, it comes from a desire to understand how sedimentary basins work more purely. Hmm. Okay, so how can we um, look at how heat flow varies through time as a function of structural position and how does that impact reservoir quality? So, you know, there's a bit in there for the, the pure person and a bit in there for the applied person as well. So, Eric and Demetrius and Bezad kind of came up with this idea to stop this company, Earth Analytics. We now have a name and a website and we're sort of, um, we've won a little bit of money, I can announce now, a little bit of seed funding. 
awesome. um, from the um, Norwegian government, which is allowing us to go to some companies and show them a kind of starter product of machine learning outputs. Um, we've had a couple of meetings with different companies who are interested in what we're trying to do. Because it, well, you guys, I'm sure, know more about this than me. It seems like machine learning, in terms of its direct application to sedimentology, stratigraphy, and sequence stratigraphy, is not as far along as machine learning's general application to other kind of technological problems. Yeah, yeah, I would agree with that. And I, I, but you, you touched on a really interesting sort of philosophical point about machine learning, I think, which is. Um, you know, what you describe about sort of finding relationships between porosity and position in the basin and burial depth and other sort of geological parameters is, you know, it's sort of the purpose of subsurface exploration, right? And, and we've, we've attacked that problem by hiring awesome geologists and sending them into the field in uh, exotic places and saying, can you figure out how this basin works genetically and make predictions about where we should explore. And in a way, in in one manifestation of machine learning, you go, no, no, I don't care about any of that. <laughs> I'm just going to pour everything into this model. The big hole. And <laughs> foul, right? And it's kind of like, the, the, I think we've talked about on the show before, but like the way that Google used to do, or that you used to try and do machine translation was to hire linguists to build a language model, and now you use deep learning to sort of um, just magic a language model that isn't a model of language, it's just a statistical model out of nowhere. It doesn't use any linguists or any expertise at all. But, but it sounds like you're interested in can the models that emerge from the machine learning task tell us anything about the genetics and can they tell us anything about geology? Yeah, exactly. exactly. We, we, yeah, we want to include the rocks as much as possible in this. So, my, again, my understanding and the understand, you know, is that in geophysics it seems like it's gone a lot further than it has in pure geology. There's been a lot of thought about using geophysical data and machine learning. Um, that, might be, that might be a misunderstanding on my part, but in terms of the geological side of things and actually understanding geological processes in basins, it seems like it's a bit further behind. So we very much want the geologists to be on board with the whole process and also understanding the product that comes back out. So mm. we have all sorts of crazy ideas about automatic detection of flooding surfaces based on looking at fasces allocations, right? And actually having a fuzzy understanding of, okay, you call it fasces X, but it could be fasces Y, and what is the impact actually if it's fasces Y rather than X? You know, how how does that change our sequence stratigraphic model then, and how does it affect our usage of that potential sequence stratigraphic model, potentially affect our usage of that sequence stratigraphic model? So it's probably as much about, again, admitting that when we go in the core storm, we try and interpret sedimentary fasces from, you know, some sedimentary structures that we might be wrong. And I guess with this machine learning is to try and get all that wrongness in and sort of mush it all about and then see exactly what, whether it matters or not in terms of the final interpretation and the application. Yeah, right. So yeah, that's a... Sort of like perturbation sensitivity testing. Yeah, you know, it might, it might whether it's a distal lower shore face or proximal lower shore face overlying coal, <laughs> it might not matter for whether you say that the basin has flooded or not, but the basin has flooded, you know. It's kind of, there, there, there's some things in those fascist interpretations which may be more important than others, and we're, and I guess by, 
you know, the North Sea's just got this amazing well database, thousands of wells, you know, that are just freely available with core and wildline logs and everything, you know, so you can, if you can somehow start to bring that all together, and the North Sea's a really good place to do it, we feel, because it's um, a very mature basin, hmm. but there's lots of little opportunities here and there if you can understand how all those dry wells and those wells which didn't work, what they're telling you about where to look. Not just the successes, but all the bum wells. You know, what do? How can they tell us about why they were bad and why you wouldn't try and do that again? But using all of the data rather than just we've got this block here, this well didn't work next door. <laughs> you know, we want to take a bit more of a holistic basin scale view. That's kind of the cool thing about machine learning. You can just let it rip. Uh, the problem, maybe this isn't a problem, but uh, the difference. And sort of the bummer to me is I was talking to a machine learning friend the other day who said, uh, he, was, he was looking through a geophysics article and said, I I've, haven't seen a real actual equation since I finished my PhD. All you do is say, run on this. And as you say, kind of have the algorithm pick up the, the, the null variable, you know, the, the variables which represent the null space and toss all that or, or don't toss it out, depending on what your goal is. Um, but uh, it's a it's a weird, new, different way of doing science. Um, well, this is, yeah, I mean, it's a good point, Graham. This is what is probably scaring quite a lot of the people we're talking to. Hmm. And it scared me, because it is, I'm, <laughs> I'm a field jockey. I interpret seismic data. I don't deal with algorithms and equations. And when somebody tells me there's a machine going to be sitting on the desk, ne desk next to me doing my job, like Matt just alluded to, that's, you know, who needs that, right? You know, nobody, no, it, it doesn't, I don't understand it, and also it's threatening. There's two reasons they're not to like it. So actually part of the trick, I think, is trying to translate it into a language where it's a complementary tool to all the basic G and G work you would do anyway, yeah. and that you felt like you have some control over it. It's not like Rise of the Robots, where this machine is suddenly yeah. going to, like, if you drink all your coffee, you'll be outside the building. It's not like Teapot, um, where algorithms are writing algorithms. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So you might want to there check are, out Chris. Uh, there's a uh, this is a uh, this is not open source. I mean, this is a commercial software, <coughs> and I'm sure it's wildly expensive. But uh, just go check out their website. The name of the company is uh, Paradise, and okay. the name of the software is no wait, that's backwards. The name of the software is Paradise. The name of the company is I think Geophysical Insights. They are doing. They have built, and Matt, you probably know about this, a machine learning interface for doing geophysical interpretations. Um, and I think, uh, I haven't played with it yet, but I've read their you know, literature. This is back to the SEG. Uh, it, it looks like they're doing, put, put in all of your attributes, put in all of your well data, uh, and then press go and, and see what you come up with. Matt, do you know more than I do about this? I, I I have a really hard time with uh, <laughs> with that company because of their because of how their booths look at SCG. <laughs> I feel I feel another rant coming on. I'm no, trying to that. supply I mean, content here, man. Is it, <laughs> is it cheerleaders serving whiskey again, or is it? It's not cheerleaders serving whiskey, but it's a kind of. Well, I was going to say faux, but of course it's faux. It's a it's a <laughs> it's like a cabana, like a kind of. Yes. Playing on the paradise theme, there's palm trees, there's a kind of shack, 
<laughs> There's people in grass skirts. Everybody, oh, all the employees are wearing Hawaiian shirts. Yeah, that's right. It's the lamest thing you've ever seen. Anyway, um, and they're, they're like the last company still kind of scratching it. Like, they must have some marketing person who's just clinging on to this kind of, it was all so much more fun in the 80s. Anyway, um, I suspect what they're doing is multilinear regression. That's, uh, uh, without, without knowing anything else, but uh, like in a Hampson Russell Emerge kind of approach. Um, which is sort of a, I mean, it is, I think it would quite, well, yeah, it qualifies as machine learning, I guess, as statistical learning. Um, it's trained on your data, you, you know, you have a model, it makes predictions, um, but it's pretty naive, um, I, I think. So I shouldn't say any more, but I know, I know they're one of these companies too that, um, I, and I'm, I'm not trying to be critical here, but there's a danger with the seismic attribute approach of, Sort of the blind uh, th throwing out any kind of um, you know causal relationships, physical relationships, and just saying, well, screw it, let's just let's just let everything fall out of the statistics and the data. That uh, that turns me off a bit. There's a couple other companies that kind of essentially their business model is give us your stack volume and we'll send you back a a hard drive with 400 attributes on it kind of thing, right? And, you know, I get it. There is there is cool stuff hidden in attributes sometimes, but it, it smacks a bit of, you know, I don't know, the, the black magic, I guess. But I guess, I guess yeah, I guess this thing, Matt, though, I mean, what you're saying is correct. I mean, with any attribute analysis or any sort of thing you get for free from a machine, you need to see geological geologically it's plausible the interpretation that you might want to make from that data, right? So if it shows you a really bright amplitude over here, should there be geologically a reason for having a really bright amplitude over here? I don't care whether the attribute shows me that. You know, you've got to you've got to still have somebody with a bit of geosense hmm. kind of looking at that product, don't you? So I completely I completely agree with what you're saying. Yeah, it's I mean, it's because it's so easy to 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 generate this stuff, and and that is definitely my worry with machine learning is that we continue down the black magic path. Um, yeah, I'm just gonna because I've said black magic twice now. I'm just gonna mention because I don't think I've mentioned on the show before. But the first ever paper in geophysics, 1933-ish or something, um, you you have to read. So go to geophysics volume one, issue one, and read the first paper. It's it's I can't remember the exact title, but it's something like Black Magic in Geophysics, and uh, it's totally fantastic. Read it before you go to the next SEG or, or other large exhibition. Um, it's <laughs> one of the most heartwarming scientific papers you'll ever read, and it's got a couple of stories in it that are just classics. <coughs> the link classic. to that article is in show notes for episode one, I believe. Oh, damn it. Way to take us back. Well, there you go. Anyway, um, thanks for telling us about that, Chris. Because um, about Earth Analytics, I think you know, I'm am seeing other machine learning startups pop up around our space, and I think um, I think there's going to be some really exciting stuff happening in there in the in the coming. What's cool is it's going to be in the coming months, kind of thing, right? Because yeah. stuff's moving so quickly, and hopefully, the need for a really awesome some little mini conference on machine learning and geoscience at some point in the next 
little wire. You're but, welcome to come across the water, Matthew. <laughs> Let me pivot I, yeah, the conversation I, I'd here, love guys. I'd to spend more time in Europe. We have talked about some awesome science-y stuff, and now we need to talk about some real serious stuff here. Educational <laughs> system. What's happening in the UK? All It's all milk and honey. <laughs> That's what I put in my tea, right? <laughs> yeah, it's... Um, well, the education system is... I know where this is going, probably related to Brexit, right? But, I mean, um, as it is, it, because we've not started to feel the full turbulence yet of that, it's, a, you know, in general, it's a great system. I've enjoyed it there. I think the British education system is... Uh, education research system is really, really good. I think it has some distinct um, advantages over the US system, which I... I think we lost Chris. Um, so I think in general it's a really good system. Now looking forward to the future in, in light of what's recently just happened, yeah, we're not sure what's going to happen. We have started to feel a bit of that turbulence. There's already some uh, researchers who are not being included on European hosted grants because there's... I, I'm not entirely sure why. There seems to be a concern that if you have like a British academic on your grant that in two years' time when we leave the EU, um, I don't even know what's going to happen, whether the money will vanish from the grant. Nobody's really articulated yet to me why, and this has gone on Twitter a few times, why they've been dropped, what their collaborator in Europe has said is the reason that they've been dropped off the grant, or the collaborator in Europe saying, we've done it for this reason. Right. So it's all a bit like the boogeyman, you know, everybody's a bit scared of, you know, like a kind of perceived threat, and it's better just to shed all these British people off research grants. So I, I, don't, I, I don't quite, I honestly don't know enough because there's not been enough data, you know, we've got N equals one on that, you know, it's just Twitter just and a few people in the guard, you know, there's been some science press about it as well saying that people have been dropped. Um, what I can, what, I guess what I'm also concerned about or more concerned about perhaps is from an educational point of view from PhDs and MSCs. Now, if I understand it correctly, you know, coming, we, you know, the, the fees for somebody from Europe to come to Imperial College is the same pretty much as somebody from, you know, London to go to Imperial College, right? It's a reduced fee because of the you're in part of the union. If you come from uh, India or Pakistan or China, you know, somewhere else, it's a lot more. It's three times the price. So, you know, European people have that freedom of movement to choose an educational institution because the price is the same. Hmm. Now, if we leave the EU, potentially we're going to become a much more expensive location to study because we won't be covered by that. Well, depending on what we sign up to. This is why, you know, it's all speculation. If we suddenly become a much more expensive um, uh, place to study, then some really good students will choose to go elsewhere, won't they? They'll choose to go to places in, you know, Grenoble or Zurich or, you know, or wherever, you know, Imperial or might consider to be their European competitors. They'll choose to go there and not to us. So there'll be a brain drain in that respect. We'll struggle to attract strong students at MSc and PhD level because we're expensive. And that's not good for us, obviously, in terms of educating people or conducting high-level research. Mm -hmm. Well, yeah, like you say, I mean, it's just a lot of speculation, isn't it? But in a way, you know, if 
it's sort of in the absence of information, people will act anyway yeah. uh, and sort of hedge their bets or, you know, depending on how risk-averse they are, just say thing, come out and say things like, well, we're getting rid of all the British researchers on this grant, um, this funding opportunity because, because, because there's risk. So it's sort of almost like it almost doesn't doesn't matter if there's information or not, I guess. But I, I mean, the, the, for me, the one kind of beacon of hope <coughs> is, you know, I mean, you've spent time in Norway. Um, I've spent time in Norway. Lots of uh, lots of British geoscientists spend time in Norway, and um, and that seems to function without Europe, without being a member of the European Union. Um, and there's lots of opportunities for researchers and their universities and so on. But um, but of course they're it's a very rich country. Uh, yeah, it's, a it's not a model we can port. <laughs> no, but it gives me hope for the sort of, um, I guess, that it is possible to put enough sort of treaties and agreements and so on in place. In principle, they can exist. Um, yeah. Whether you've got the clout and the sort of leverage to pull them off is maybe another question, but um, in principle, they can exist. I mean, I mean yeah, I think, how long does it take to put them in place? I mean, I, it's interesting because I think, you know, you think about Brexit and the impact on your immediate environment, you know, well, how's it going to impact me work-wise and research-wise and education-wise? You know, I've been asked this a few times over here. And I just think, you know, <laughs> this is not a political chat show, right? <laughs> but, like, you know, Brexit's about way more than that. <laughs> you know, it's about way more than... You know, research ties with Europe and funding opportunities. So I'll, I'll probably leave it there. You know, <laughs> there's a, there's a lot of big big issues that have been reported in the Guardian yesterday and today. I say the Guardian because that's what I read in the BBC, but over here, um, and they're they're more important. So I guess I, I I kind of think these other things are really bad. But again, they're kind of like in my peripheral vision until we start getting some numbers and we start getting some evidence as to how it's going to impact our relationship. It's sort of but, it, but until then, I mean, the great thing is we can have these meetups, like I'm talking about this, mm. this informal meetup with these people. You know, they're your, they're all European, they're all based in mainland Europe, but we can still hang out and talk science. So that's that's not going to stop. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Good. Awesome. Well, and uh, how's uh, how, I've got one more question for for Chris. How's the running going? Oh, you said you uh, do you. Do you go outside at all and run in Austin, or are you indoors on a treadmill or what? No, I've never been on a treadmill in my life. Good oh, wow. for you. Good for you. So I run outside here. It's actually fairly cloudy today, so the temperatures dipped below 30, I think, today. So I've been running. Yeah, I've been running here quite a lot. Ran to work, run back. I can. Yeah, it it feels very very hard. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and as I'm near 40 years old, it probably is feeling harder in truth. But uh, um, yeah, I've been running a lot here and cycling quite a bit. I cycle to work and back and run to work and back every day and. Uh, um, yeah, I love it. Yeah, I haven't got any races here though while I'm here, so that's kind of useful. But uh, um, yeah, I'm, I've got a couple of races as soon as I get back to London. What kind oh, okay. Of so our listeners Marathon. might not know that Chris did the London Marathon in April, right? Yeah. Um, which is a pretty awesome accomplishment. And so, what are the races you got when you get back? I've got the Royal Parks Half Marathon. It's called. So it runs around Buckingham Palace. It runs around Hyde Park. It runs around. St. James's Park, it goes down the embankment in London. It's a really spectacular city race in London because it kind of goes like, you know, around lots of tourist hotspots and then through the park. So it's very it's stunning. 
Yeah. And uh, I've also got the Ealing Half Marathon, which is in West London. I live in a place called Acton in West London. So I basically ride my bike to the start line. It's about a mile away. <laughs> and then I, I run, and then I limp back onto my bike, and then I cycle home. In fact, last year I was so tired having run the half marathon, I actually pushed my bike home. I couldn't <laughs> ride it. <laughs> but it sounds like you're going to win the duathlon event that day. Yeah. Um, yeah. <laughs> yeah, it'd be a bit like Chris Froome on uh, Mount Von Two, right? <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> So is the half is the half marathon your favourite uh, race distance? Uh, yeah, probably. It's just a bit less painful to train for. Um, yeah, I do because it's you can do more of them. They, you know, and and they're they you can sort of they're pretty handleable. But there, there's no. I absolutely love running marathons. That was the London marathon was my seventh marathon oh, I've run. Wow. Um, but the, the, honestly, if you ever want to run a race once doing marathon, if you go to the right place, it's just a, a, a like an almost spiritual experience. It is absolutely fantastic just for the crowds and the camaraderie amongst the people in the start pen and when you're running and, you know, the emotion of people at the end. It's just, uh, it's absolutely brilliant. So I, I highly recommend it. But the half marathon is just a bit more logical. You know, and I've got like two and a half kids, right? So like finding time to train is sort of, you know, kind of important. Yeah right. Yeah, it's a big, a big time commitment for sure. But that's um, that's awesome. Yeah, racing's a lot of fun. I'm I'm personally unable, it seems, to get past like just getting started again. I'm so injury prone now that I'm un, out of shape. It's it's sad. It's kind of doing me. <laughs> so I need to figure out physiotherapy or massage or something because every time I get going again, I'm like tearing a muscle or doing some old man kind of thing. But I think I think I think exercise is really I mean if you have a busy life you know I, you know we we work hard and you know we have to think hard and you know move around physically and stuff and I think exercising is really good it's one of the things that keeps me sane I think it you know it kind of gives you energy to use the energy you know you kind of get you you burn a bit of energy but you get a lot more back to think about all these things we're talking about so uh, I, know I wouldn't be I wouldn't be without it yeah totally awesome cool man well um, I think I think we must be drawing towards the end of our uh, the end of our show um, is there anything that we didn't talk about that you desperately wanted to desperately wanted to say before we say goodbye no, no, I, I'd just like to say thank you for having me on. Uh, I hope it's been interesting. Oh, yeah. well, what I'm not sure, yeah, what it, what it was supposed to be. <laughs> <laughs> it was supposed to be exactly what it was. That's what just happened. So, uh, anyway, yeah, thank you for taking time out of your Austin day and uh, creeping, into a, cre <laughs> creeping into a room uninvited. Sounds like you got away with it, so... I have. I think I've got away with it. So I'm going to go and get myself a big coffee now and then uh, go and interpret some seismic data. That's it. Wonderful. Thanks for joining us, Chris. Um, we'll see you listeners next week. Thanks very much. <laughs> Bye. Bye-bye.